um, yesterday I loaded this PowerPoint onto the website that they've developed for you. So you can go in and look at it electronically. And my hope with doing this is, as we move on, I'll be going through some slides pretty quickly. And I don't want you to feel like you have to scribble down all the notes. It's all there. You don't have to worry about losing anything. You're, you're good to go on that. Um, a little bit about myself. I'm not a, a medical person. Um, I actually um, work with the Wycliffe Global Alliance, and Wycliffe does Bible translation and literacy and community development work around the world um, with about 125 partner organizations. And the alliance used to be called Wycliffe International. It's like that umbrella organization that holds together all the partners. Um, we signed a partnership agreement with the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College in May. And starting next summer, I'll be the uh, incoming director for the Institute for Cross-Cultural Training. And so I'll still work with Wycliffe, and I'll do that. So that's kind of a little bit about my background. I'm on the board of EMQ. If you ever read EMQ, it's a mission journal. Um, and then I'm working on a Ph.D. at Trinity in educational studies. So I have no medical background. So I'll just clarify that up front. But it's such a joy to be here with you. I tell you what, I've heard about this conference before, and it is just, I am so impressed. I mean, I, I just think it's really cool what you're doing. I love the balance of the generations. I love the balance of, of topics. I, I'm I'm going to be telling more people about it in the future, so it's very encouraging to be here. Um, as far as this topic goes, just a little bit about um, how I came to this place. When I first went overseas, um, I was a CPA, and I was asked to be our Asia Area Finance uh, Manager, and we had about 22 partner organizations, and I lived in Asia. I had 24 trips to foreign countries in 24 months. It was one of those kind of roles where you're just in and out of all these different countries and you're mentoring and you're coaching and you're putting out fires and you're, you're talking to people. Um, and I came home on furlough. I met my husband, who's wonderful, and I got married and we settled in Chicago. And so I wasn't sure what I would do from there. And for three years, they asked me to oversee the whole international audit program, which meant all the funding that went through all of our partner organizations um, all around the world. That was very challenging. Um, after that, the, that sort of led me to a place where I felt like we have a bottleneck here. We have, um, we're sending funding to a lot of countries and we need accountability, but in a lot of countries people feel like even asking for accountability means you don't trust me and that's breaking down the relationships and if nobody takes some time to research this, we're never going to move forward in this area. So I asked if I could create like a research job for a few years and just network and talk and learn everything I could and they gave their blessing for that. And um, since that time, I've also been doing a lot of work in cross-cultural consulting in this area. Out of that period came the book, and this is why I think they invited me. Hey, Sherry. Sherry's in my PhD program, and I haven't seen her all weekend. Anyway, there's so many people here. So anyway, the purpose for the book, why I wrote it, um, is uh, some of the very worst conflicts, conflicts I saw happening in mission often came because of misunderstandings and disagreements about money. And I felt like we would never really, I felt like the global body of Christ had everything it needed to accomplish God's purposes in the world. But if we didn't learn how much culture was impacting our own views about money, 
we would never be able to move past um, where we needed to to really partner together. So um, some people have said, oh, they thought it was going to be about money, and they were surprised it was so much about relationships. So, um, so I have a question for you. Um, just in your own mind, think for a second and reflect about it. Why is it important for you to partner well? Why is it important for you to learn how to partner well? What are the stakes for your own life, your own ministry? So let's just think about that for, for 30 seconds or so. Um, the tricky thing is, is that often we're so excited about partnering, but we don't realize that often if we collaborate, we're going to have more conflict, not less conflict. That really throws people somehow. Um, but in um, an article in the Harvard Business Review a long time ago, they proved this and they were talking about it. And often um, money does cause the worst conflicts. And the problem is, is that as I looked at what I was seeing in global missions, it's almost like culture was the puppet master <laughs> and it was causing all of these knee-jerk reactions in people but they were oblivious to the fact that culture was pulling so many of their strings it was almost like before people went to serve overseas they had learned all about contextualization for medical work or or they've learned about learning the language or they've learned about church planting or whatever, but they never stopped to look at their, how they were viewing money. And um, the, the tricky thing with, the, with partnering is that it's incredibly complex. And um, I get kind of troubled when I hear people preach easy answers to it. They'll say, oh, well, it's very easy. If you want to partner, this is what you need to do. You need to have them sign a form. You need to have them do da 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 well, um, neocolonialism is easy. Partnership is very difficult. Neocolonialism means I have the money and I tell you what you need to do to get it and you will comply and if you don't, I will find another partner who does. Okay? That means one person is adapting but the other isn't. Um, that's neocolonialism. I think real partnership means... Um, we recognize that if we were only working in our own culture, we could all have our own way, probably, in how money is handled. But if we're coming together in intercultural collaboration, that means we often all have to change. Um, so I think we need cultural intelligence, and it's a blend of interpersonal skills and cultural awareness. It's not just um, dumping information into our brains and then we'll be competent. Um, it's having our behavior and our instincts honed over time and through practice so that we're a blessing and not a hindrance to God's missional purposes in the world. And that's a process. And I wish I could tell you you could grow in that process without making mistakes. But that would be a lie. Uh, our cultural intelligence should be growing all the time as we reflect on our mistakes. But it doesn't mean that content isn't important and that we can't learn things proactively that will help us alleviate a number of mistakes. So that's why I wrote the book. So um, I want to kind of explain the purpose of our time together. Um, uh, in the book, there are all kinds of topics, uh, many of which it would be helpful if, if you thought about before they happen to you. Um, 
But um, but when they asked me to do this session, I thought, okay, it's a mission prep session. What's most important? And I thought the first step is respect. Because if we can respect how other people view money, then we can dialogue with them. And if we can dialogue with them, there is hope that we will find a creative solution that will work in our partnership. It's the very first step. But often we don't respect how other people handle money. And I hear comments all the time in very subtle ways that reflect that from often sometimes very seasoned missionaries. So um, the other thing in how I'm designing this is I want us to be able to learn from one another because um, it's impossible to be an expert in global missions, I think, in any one topic because every single part of the world is different. You can even be in the same country and you have different groups that you're working with. Things will play out totally differently. So um, many of you have a lot of experience, and so there will be times I'm going to divide the question time into two sections uh, after we get started because um, I don't want to wait till the very end for questions, and I also want you to be able to share things that God might be laying on your heart. But the trick for this to work, since we have so, such a short a period of time, is to be succinct when you talk. So if you tell a story, kind of tell it pretty quickly, and, uh, and then we'll move on. So let me go ahead and open us in prayer, and then we'll dive in. Um, Heavenly Father, thanks so much for this time together. Uh, we pray that you would, you would bless it. Holy Spirit, we know that you're the teacher. I pray that what you would like us to hear and learn from one another would come out. And I pray that you would make this a meaningful time so that we could do um, even better work for you in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Can people in the back hear me okay? Okay, great. Um, okay, one of the things when I started getting into this and looking at it from my own personal experiences and what I was reading is I, it seemed like more than anything else when it came to funding mission was the difference between individualism and collectivism. That, that mindset, that understanding. Now, sometimes in the literature you'll have people will list countries on different levels. That's, that can be helpful, but it isn't necessarily accurate because that country number came from averaging millions of responses. So, so you can't go by that, but it can help you understand. And whenever you're one place on that spectrum and your partner's at a different place, you are ripe for conflict. And so that's so I want to kind of go through and explain some of this. For those of you who came in um, later, all of this, uh, there are some extra handouts, but if you don't have one, all of this is on the web, so you don't have to worry about trying to catch everything. We'll kind of fly through these quickly. So um, not understanding and respecting um, differences between individualistic and collectivistic um, worldviews more than any other reason is the main reason I see partnerships failing. Um, people assume that uh, a behavior means the same thing as it does in their own uh, culture. So they assign meaning and they assign motives to certain behaviors that simply are not accurate in that culture. Um, when money's involved, this is especially common. And if we can't step back, um, basically, and really see things through our partner's eyes, then we're, we're not going to be able to make any headway. 
So, um, so when we look at individualism, it's the idea that individual is the basic unit in society. People are supposed to be able to provide for themselves. They're supposed to be financially independent. They're supposed to save for things like retirement. Um, personal goals are, are good. People fulfill their personal goals, and, and if they do, they're respected and admired. And um, the implicit assumption is that only by attending to your own personal goals will society succeed. So, you know, that's really critical. And um, individualism uh, impacts how we view the family. It's a nuclear family. It's a mom and dad and siblings. People are taught to look out for themselves. Um, they're taught to think for themselves. Um, you know, children are encouraged to be creative, distinguish themselves from one another. This is really key. They're viewed to be immature if, as they continue to age, they continue to depend on people too much. So maturity is self-reliance. And um, the, the only difference with this, I think, this paradigm is sort of what they were talking about yesterday is that Young people, young adults graduating from college, some of them have such a crushing debt load that this is impacting, I think, their ability to move on and, and be independent. So that's, that's impacted it some. But by and large, in, in the country, that's how we look at things. And so um, we look at passages like the First Timothy 5.8 passage as meaning, um, you know, basically take care of your your, your immediate family, um, and that's what's required. And that passage talks about, you know, um, how awful it is <laughs> for any Christian not to take care of their, their family. Um, I, I would open up the passage, but I, I want to save a little bit of time. So, um, so that's how they define that passage. But the role of money, most people believe that on some level it's embarrassing to be in need, um, it's only acceptable if there's been a Hurricane Katrina or a Hurricane Sandy or uh, Joplin, Missouri, or, I mean, a, a horrible health issue. Then maybe you're allowed to ask for help. But by and large, you should just be able to meet your own needs and do it, take care of things. So in these cultures, um, money is really important, and it's often on people's minds. It's a major uh, issue when making decisions. And a person's ability to manage it is the sign of maturity. Now, what's interesting is these cultures land on certain passages. And they'll land on a passage like uh, Matthew 25, 1 to 13, the maidens and the oil and the lamp. Now, there's a lot more to that passage, obviously. But they'll, they'll look at that. They'll look at the faithful steward and the unfaithful steward later in uh, that parable um, in Matthew 25. Uh, they'll, they'll point to the passage that Jesus talked about in Luke 14 about what builder does not first consider the costs. They'll land on that passage. They'll look at the Romans 13, 7 to 8 passage about, oh, no man, anything. They'll really focus on that a lot. And they'll look at passages like Proverbs 13, 22, you know, a godly person saves uh, and provides an inheritance for their children, that sort of thing. Um, so the issue with it is its security. Basically, simply put, in individualistic societies, if you don't have money, you have no security. You cannot function. So you have to have money to function. 
And um, the people that have uh, the most wealth are the most admired because they're the most independent and they're the most secure. And But what's interesting is collectivism works so differently. Um, people um, define themselves only in relationship to other people or uh, their in-group or their own community. And they don't reference I but we. Uh, some cultures don't even have the words in their language for personal possessive pronouns. In, in Korean, there is no mine, you know. It's ours. Uh, if A friend of mine told me if my mother came to visit when I was in college, I would introduce her as this is our mother. I mean, the whole language, you know, doesn't have uh, the personal possessive pronouns. So family is uh, means... It's broadly defined. So the responsibility in um, 1 Timothy 5, where it says if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an infidel, they view that as their cousins, their aunts, their uncles. So they take that very seriously. So then in collectivistic cultures, children get their ideas from others. Children with dissenting views are seen as having weak character. And so this was such an interesting example in one book, um, Brooke Peterson's book in Cultural Intelligence, and he talked about watching children in an Asian country learning how to color. And every child at the table would watch the others and pick up the exact same crayon and color the picture in the exact same way so that at the end, all the pictures looked the same. I think it was a Japanese classroom he he was looking at. And so all the pictures are displayed and everything looks the same. Well, you know, we would never do that. We display, oh, Johnny, Susie, your picture looks so different from everybody else's. Oh, that's really great. So it's very uh, deep-rooted. And um, because you're supposed to share and because things are supposed to be the same, um, People's identity is tied to the group, and they'll sacrifice a great deal. They'll, they'll sacrifice a lot of their personal goals for the identity of the group. And um, what's owned by one person is often seen as a communal asset. And this gets very confusing for people when they send funding, and they think, why in the world did we send funding for, say, this one health initiative, and now everybody thinks they have a right to it? Well, um, there was a book written by an SIL colleague, African Friends and Money Matters, that was so excellent. And he went in and he explained the difference between Western economic worldviews and, say, the way Africans view money. And, and basically he said in the West, the goal was to increase wealth. And so the Western system, one, it only works when there's an infrastructure, <laughs> So, you know, uh, when water gets shut off, everybody on my little street goes out and, do you have water? Do you have water? If power's out, are you okay? Are you okay? When, when all the infrastructure's working, we're all busy about our business. We, we say hi and off we go. But when there's no infrastructure, people have to be able to do this to survive. If they don't do this, they will die. <laughs> so... It's very easy to say, well, they should just do this the way we do it in the West because, look, our our economy has grown so much. Yes, our economy has grown a lot, but we have jobs. In a lot of these places, the employment rate might be 25% in the whole region, you know. Uh, One person who has a job might have to support all these people or they're going to die. So... 
So I think if we can grasp the, um, the rationale for why these things have happened, then, then and we can then respect it. We don't have to say it's bad just because it's different. It is different because certain situations have caused it to be different. So, um, so in these situations, people are taught to rely and depend upon each other. Um, people look for help with medical bills, emergency, funding, education, all these things. Most of us would say you should have planned ahead. But the idea is they share when somebody else has a need, so when they have a big need, somebody will share with them. And so people take uh, joy and satisfaction in helping other people. And um, the people with the most experience in the group, like the elderly, are treated with the greatest respect. And so these people also land on scriptures. They totally land on scripture to support how they look at the world. So they'll look at Matthew 6, 19 to 24, where Jesus said, don't store up wealth. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, Matthew 6, 25 to 34, um, don't worry about the future, you know. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 14 to 15, everything should be shared so everyone is equal. Uh, James 2, 14 to 17, you know, how can you say you're even a Christian if you don't help people that are in need? Uh, Acts 2, 41 to 47, my goodness, the whole, like, result of people becoming Christians should be that they share, you know. And so in these cultures, um, that sharing uh, and those relationships, that's the security. And um, only relationships will protect people from hard times. And loyalty is totally expected. And since relationships are the way things are done, a person's reputation within the community is critical. And it's way deeper than reputation is the concept of face and how much it impacts cultures. So when face is lost, a person is shamed, and a person is shamed when he doesn't meet the expectations of others. And these expectations are linked to a person's job, their status in a group, and often if they're partnering with an outside Western partner. Um, So the way I sort of equate it is this. Um, Imagine you went to your ATM today and you saw that a white-collar criminal had just wiped out your accounts. Your checking account's gone. Your savings account is gone. Um, it's just gone. Okay, how would you feel? You know, how would you be able to function in society? It would be very difficult. When people lose face, That's how they feel, and that's their situation in a culture. And when they're partnering with a Western partner, uh, there's certain status sometimes, there's certain responsibilities they have in their community, and if they don't respond, they can lose their ability to function. Um, So in many cases, face becomes the currency of these cultures, and since face is needed to function effectively within the community, Um, If it's lost, people will often take um, drastic measures um, to rectify it. And so, for instance, like if you look at, I think sometimes we misunderstand one another. We think, oh, my partner doesn't care about me. I keep telling them we have to have this report to meet the requirements of the IRS, blah, 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 and they don't seem to be responding. But in a lot of cultures, the relationship with the government, the government isn't even... uh, 
ethical. <laughs> Maybe it is filled with corruption. So when you tell somebody, I need this to, for the IRS or whatever, that, that's just stupid. <laughs> yeah, then why would you even worry about that? But if you tell somebody, if I am not able to show the people who gave me these funds that they were spent the way they gave the money for them to be spent, I'm going to experience so much shame. I'm going to experience a profound amount of shame. And I am going to lose face so badly that it is going to impact me and and our whole organization. If you speak that language, a lot of times they'll say, oh, okay, well, let's figure out what we need to do because you're my friend and I don't want you to lose face and you're trying to protect me from losing face. But, um, but what happens is that in these cultures, the greatest sins are not sharing, causing another to lose face and disrupting uh, harmony. And what happens is, say, you're working with a pastor or you're working with someone and And now they have a cousin, and the cousin isn't a Christian, and the cousin's going to die if they don't get a surgery. And nobody has the money for the surgery, but you have funds there that your partner has sent for something. So the pastor, and everybody knows you have access to those funds. So if the pastor doesn't give that money, you know, the cousin dies. They're not even a believer. They're afraid they're going to go to hell. If, if they give the funds, then people will think they're a good pastor and they'll save face and they'll be able to work effectively in their culture. If they don't give funds, their partner will be happy, but the person will lose credibility, will experience tremendous shame, will be disrespected by the very people that the partner wants them to have a ministry with. So it gets very complex and... Um, What's important with it is to realize that both ways of looking at life have often made an idol out of what they look for for security. So in Matthew 6.24, Jesus said, you have got to love God more than money. And then in Matthew 10.37, he says, you've got to love me more than, um, you know, mother, sister, brother, I'm misquoting it, but, you know, You have to love me more than your family. So I want to take a a few minutes and I wonder if you have a a quick story or or questions or thoughts and um, maybe, maybe a few. Many of you are involved in medical missions. I have stories in the next section of a few medical stories that... um, been fascinating but you know this is like your world any thoughts stories or questions if not we can move on but well, this is right at the crux of where our church is with uh, orphanage in Zambia that we support you know the western church is saying we just uh, gave you you know bought a brick making machine for $5,000 and it's sitting under a tarp because nobody's done any training to make bricks. So we're not going to send you any more money because we don't think you're using it wisely. But, you know, we sent, last year we, we sent $15,000, but we don't have, we have no building to, to see, you know, that was supposed to go to the school. Where did this money go? Well, that money went to feed somebody's kid or put somebody to school or buy some shoes for somebody else. It got distributed. We trust the 
the local pastor there is doing the right thing, but the misconception of the congregation is we're just throwing our money away. Why would we want to keep supporting that church? Mm-hmm. And it's this whole cross-cultural, you know, crux of the issue that you're talking about. It's really getting home. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll kind of repeat that a little for this recording or whatever that they're making that um, running into the same problem in your church in a partnership in Zambia with an orphanage or with churches where money has been given for very specific purposes but then later when there's follow-up they see that either the money wasn't spent for that purpose or it didn't accomplish the purpose that the funds were supposed to to meet. Um, I I have always really appreciated a comment that Sherwood Lingenfelder made once, and he was the um, provost at Fuller, and he's written a lot about cross-cultural work around the world. And um, he said that often when we're partnering, we need to either role play or do some good critical thinking with our partners before money is sent to say, now if we send you this money, what's going to happen? And have them just talk through, what's going to happen? Well, this could happen or this could happen. I might be tempted to use it myself or so-and-so is going to want it. And then give people time to kind of process that and work out their own strategy for what they will do. Um, Another thing that can really help is not just having funds allocated for that project, but having extra funds for humanitarian purposes so that if something really does come up, you're able to show that you're a partner who cares and you're not just very narrow in how you're viewing things. Um, What's fascinating with individualistic cultures is our whole accounting process is built on it. This little person here wants to give money for... I don't know, say malaria medicine or something. That, that gift goes all the way through this organization, lands in a totally different country where the worldview of money is very different. And if that money isn't spent the way this one individual wanted it to be spent, it's fraud. It's considered fraudulent. And you can lose your nonprofit status. You can have all kinds of terrible things happen. But it's all based on individualism. Yet the money's landing in a collectivistic culture. So that's why I say dialogue is so important because how, how to ensure that the funds get to where they need to go and holistic good happens might look a bit different in each place. But we have to give people a chance to wrestle with it. If we just dump a lot of money into a place, some people will have so much temptation, they'll fall and they'll actually lose their ability to minister for the rest of their lives. And shame on us. I mean... So, so anyway, a um, couple more comments. Yeah, um, I'm from Uganda, and we depend so much on the weather. When it rains, it's time to plant. If you miss it, we don't control things. Mm-hmm. So someone comes up to me and says, uh, I have money to buy an anesthesia machine. It's difficult for me to say no, mm-hmm. because this is the rainy season. I should take it while it's still raining. Mm-hmm. But then I receive the money, and then I remember I, I actually can't use an anesthesia machine. <laughs> <laughs> what I need is a dental machine. And the story you just told reminded me of one exact story that happened to us. You know, we say yes to an anesthesia machine.
machine, and then I realize I can't employ an anesthetist. We don't have that level of surgery. So over time, we keep quiet, and then we write a small email saying, can we change to dental? This part, I did not get back to the original donor. We had this fear. If we say, no, we want to do dental, he's going to pull out. Yeah. But time passes, and somehow we do dental, and this donor comes back and says, where is the anesthesia machine? And we say, no, we bought a dental machine, and the relationship crumbles. Uh. So over time, we learn to say, yes, while it's still raining. <laughs> that, okay, so I'll repeat that for the um, recording because that's really powerful. So in Uganda, uh, when it rains, well, so much is dependent on the weather. And um, so when funds are coming and somebody's offering to buy something like an anesthesia machine, it's the idea, it's, it's raining, I need to respond while it's there. But later, realizing that we really don't need an anesthesia machine, we don't even have the skill level for that type of surgery. What we really need is a dental machine. And um, so funds are spent for that. But um, then when the donor finds out, then the relationship crumbles. And, um, and it's, it's tough. I mean, it is really tough. And I think what you just described is, is a pretty accurate thing, assessment of what's happening in global <coughs> partnerships. I um go ahead. I just have a question. Wouldn't it have been on the part of the church here in America to train individuals who want to donate to projects to say, this is how it works over there, okay? It works here this way here, but over there it's a different story and explain like you have done here at least an idea, okay, this is really how it works. It's a collective community. Not individualistic people are going to want money for different things to help with different humanitarian efforts. Because, like you said, there's that disconnect because we give it to this, we're going to, this one little narrow minded thing, which is good, but that may not be the real need. But because we're narrow minded <coughs> enough to say, well, that's just, that's why I gave it. And you get all mad about that. Well, I mean, what, you're not there. If you want to, you want to make sure it goes to that get on the plane and go there. And I think um, that really is very much the reason why I wrote the book, <coughs> because I felt like I've heard all kinds of stories of, of partnerships falling apart. And there is an assumption that if the funds weren't spent for that exact reason, that now somebody's been unethical, they've not been truthful. There's all these negative meanings attached to that behavior. And I do think we need, if we're really going to partner well, we need to train churches. We need to train donors. Um, I probably ought to take one more, and then we'll head on. Uh, I, oh, this is so difficult. There's three. Okay, let, let's start. I'll be really okay. quick. Um, I, I just, my sense in listening to this is there's some responsibility also on the receiver. And mm -hmm. is, is, do you address asking right questions um, in your book so yeah. that we as donors can ask right questions so that we don't have the confusion about the dental versus the anesthesia? 
Right, I do, and there's all kinds of things in the book. Like one of the appendices is all about how do you develop an accountability process when funds are coming in to a country. And so many times we require a certain accountability process that ensures accountability, say, in our country or the country where the funds were donated, but it does nothing in that other country. And then I can actually send a totally different message. For instance, receipts. So a lot of times people say, well, we want receipts. Well, in that country, the best way to commit fraud is to use receipts. So now the donor is requesting that there be receipts, which basically means they're sending the message that you can just commit all the fraud you want. You know, because, yeah. And so one of the appendices is, is all about how do you work with people, how do you ask the right types of questions so they can dialogue amongst themselves and develop a process that will work. Okay, I'll go in the back end. Yeah, um, so the idea that how we define rich is not how other people define rich, how we define fraud is not how other people define fraud, um, it's, it's again, it's the training. Um, okay, I'll do two more, and then I'll rush through the next session. Okay. Well, you must include also the fact that we serve a community where you almost have to pay into uh, security forces for protection to operate. Those security forces in one side of the fence may look to protect what we're trying to do, but then they're also used to protect other forces that aren't so Christian and godly. So how do you reconcile that yeah. as well with a missional purpose? You do work with uh, many different parties that uh, we in the West may not include or determine to be the, the right people, but some of those funds are used as basic infrastructure to even operate there. So yeah. It's, it's complicated, and I, I feel so badly that I can't take every hand, every hand that was raised. That just drives me nuts, I have to tell you. But we only have like 15 more minutes or whatever. Um, uh, the next thing I want to kind of look at, because it plays into this, is the degrees of high-context and low-context communication. Is truth found primarily in the words, or is truth found in the nonverbal behaviors? So... Um, in a low-context communication, uh, words are what's most important. And being direct is a sign of maturity, and we place a high value on words. So in these cultures, children um, are taught to um, quit beating around the bush, say what you mean, get to the point. These are kinds of the phrases, how children are formed. Um, in low-context cultures, when someone isn't direct, they're often perceived as being shifty, 
and such behavior is deemed as not being trustworthy. So you have a situation where um, a person said, yes, I will take the money and I will buy this machine, but then they buy a dental machine. So uh, they said one thing with their words, but their actions said something else. Now, if you're from a really direct culture, sometimes people freak out over that, and they instantly think, wow, this, this means this person is a certain way. Well, it might mean that in your own culture, but it doesn't necessarily mean that at all when you're working cross-culturally. You have this situation happen with reporting and all kinds of things where uh, we want reports, we want them in writing, but it might not even be a written culture. Why not just Skype the person or call, get a verbal report, have somebody transcribe it, you know? Um, so anyway, um, but there are other paths. Many collectivistic cultures use high-context communication, and words don't have the same value, and words are actually secondary to the real meaning. So speaking directly to somebody is viewed as being disrespectful, and only children are spoken to directly. Um, a friend of mine told me, she said, you know, this, this is the way it is in my country. She said, only a child would be so dense not to be able to read the signs. I mean, only, like, if you speak to somebody and you directly, you're basically saying, you are so dense, you are so undeveloped that I have to speak to you as a child. And so um, to speak directly can be a real insult, and um, it can be also a form of aggression. And I don't know about you, but think about conflicts you've been in. If somebody starts treating you like a child, does it help or hurt? Well, you start, it just exacerbates the conflict. So, but the funny thing is a lot of culture, or a lot of the social science literature will say, say the U.S. is a direct culture. Often they'll say a low-context culture is known by how many lawyers there are. So again, the U.S. is viewed as being very low-context. And other contexts are high-context, but... When it comes to money, the rule often flips. And um, so I was at a conference a couple years ago, and these two partners were talking. One was a friend of mine, U.S. citizen, had been in the country years and years, and his um, indigenous partner, I won't say, yeah, so his Thai partner. So anyway, so they're talking about partnership, and she starts saying, you know, one thing's really hard in front of this whole audience. One thing's really hard. You know, everybody in our culture, they always ask, how much do you earn and how much did you pay for this and how much did you pay for that and da-da-da. And we always, you always say, you know. But after all these years, I still don't know what my partner earns. And people in the village will say, well, how much does your partner earn? And I tell them, I don't know. And they think I'm lying and they think I'm hiding money. But I'm not. We don't. I don't earn much. But all these years, and she's just like, all these years, I still don't know how much he earns. And, you know, and then she says, well, maybe it's better I don't know how much he earns. Maybe I'd be upset if I knew how much he earned. And so she's saying this in front of, like, 250 people. And, um, and it really struck me how so many times we say we want transparency. But how how often we lack transparency with the people that we work with. But it's this big, gaping blind spot. We don't see uh, the mixed message. So I want to share a couple stories about mixed messages. So um, one situation that I knew of well where the two partners um, 
often used family nomenclature in their partnership. So they're partners, but they'd say we're family. So the wealthier partner wanted to loan money to the less affluent partner so they could buy a new building for their offices. And um, they signed a, a loan agreement and everything. And then what happened is is they had one building that wasn't working as well. So they, they bought this new building, uh, the partners with less money. And they were so excited, but then... There are members working for that organization who were chronically under-supported at the time started moving into the old building, but the old building was supposed to be sold to pay off the loan. Okay, so now the the wealthier partner has given money in a loan, in a loan agreement, uh, and now all the members of the less affluent organization are living in the old building. That's not even up on the market. They're just moving in family and everyone. And they're really excited because now they can survive better. And um, and so basically uh, the wealthier partner started really putting the pressure on the less affluent partner, saying, you signed this agreement, you're breaking your rule, your um, promise, blah, blah, blah. What they didn't understand is in that culture, family often forms loans together, and they often even write up a loan agreement. But never, if the less affluent family member is hitting hard times, does the wealthier family member put pressure on them to repay. And so the less affluent partner was so upset for a very long time saying, how can our family do this to us? How can they do this? And it it took, gosh, probably seven, eight, nine years for that to heal. They ended up selling the building. The wealthier partner, I don't think, really ever grasped their part of the situation. I think they always just saw it as this other group wasn't doing what they said they would do. Loans can work differently. A a friend of mine, I'll call him Daniel, had a partner in his country whose name was James, and James was very faithful and excellent, and James used to always take, have a loan out with his partner. Well, he finally paid it off, and my friend um, Daniel was so happy that James was now out of debt. And then uh, a couple weeks later, James comes in as partner and wants to take out a bigger loan than he's ever taken before. And so my friend starts kind of preaching crown financial principles to James, and James starts looking very upset. And so my friend said, I paused, and I said, you look upset, James. What's going on? And he said, don't you understand that the reason I want to take out such a big loan is I want to show you that I'm committed to work with you as a partner for years to come. If there is no loan, I can just wash my hands, and I can walk out at any time. There is no commitment to this relationship. But if I have a loan, then it shows that I'm committed. And he had always paid faithfully, paid back his loan. So I asked my friend, Daniel, I said, so what would you do? And he said, I sat there feeling like an idiot for a minute, and, and then I gave him the loan, you know. <laughs> so we have views of how we look at money in different cultures, and we can't assume that how we're, the meaning we're assigning to it is accurate. We have to check. It's the meaning behind things that needs to be driving our response and and our uh, opinions and our behaviors. So medically, stealing's different. Um, 
I had uh, two different partnership situations. One was a friend of mine was from a country that had been ravaged by war, horrible ethnic cleansing, horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. So lots after things were finally calming down, they were getting a lot of Western partners that were coming in and, and supposedly building hospitals, building different things. Well, in this situation, he saw a lot of thieves linking up with Western partners. And he said, I wonder if anybody's doing that for my village. So he goes online, and there's this picture of this amazing hospital and an ambulance and all this stuff that's supposedly in his village. And he said, Mary, I went to my village, and there's not even a chicken coop, not even a chicken coop on that property. And so he said, so then he went to the capital, found the name of the supposed partner in his country, and he said it was this mansion unlike anything he had ever seen. So then, um, so that's one, okay? There's more to the story, but we're almost out of time. The other one is another situation where people were partnering in a hospital and uh, medical supplies kept disappearing. Uh, pharmaceutical supplies, bandages, all kinds of different medical supplies were, were disappearing all the time. And the medical staff... Uh, they were so upset, the um, Western staff, and they felt like, gosh, our partners aren't faithful. They're stealing from us. How can they do this? They were just incensed over it. Then they found out that the reason they were disappearing is a lot of people in the village were afraid to come to the hospital, and their partners were taking many of the medical supplies into the community and treating people. So the health in the area was going up. People were not dying. Things were getting better. But people didn't understand. They just assumed stealing was happening. So, so anyway, we don't have time for more stories, um, but I'm sure there's a lot. But what I want to explain is um, in the book there are all kinds of different things. There are things about how you handle funds if they're misappropriated how to look at situations if there's been true embezzlement. Um, how do you help a board think through an accountability process? What is, um, what is uh, the difference between paternalism and genuine biblical accountability? There are all these different things, many of which we can't even touch on today. So, um, so anyway, but hopefully this will give you enough to think about the next time. And, um, and maybe the longer-term question is, what messages are you sending? So anyway, thanks.